Hi, welcome to this week's Seacoast Vineyard Podcast, coming to you from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We hope this message will touch your life in a meaningful way and that you'll be encouraged in your journey with God. I'm like, I talk about it every Sunday. Amen. I mean, if you read this, you know values, you get values. If, you, if you're here in the church, you listen, you get the values uh, you know, that we hold dear. It's, you know, it's not such an easy thing sometimes, and uh, everyone has the wonderful freedom in this country to vote your convictions in your heart. There are brothers and sisters of ours in the church uh, in China and elsewhere who do not have any say at all in their government. And uh, they, all, they have the joy of the Lord. They are worshiping God this morning underground where they can, where they can gather. And, but we, we have the freedom to come and go in the public to worship like this. And we also have the wonderful uh, opportunity to vote. And so I would encourage you to look and see what everybody believes and look and see the values. The Bible does say that the righteous rejoice, uh, you know, whenever the people rejoice when the righteous rule. Whenever those in right standing with those with the right look at it the way God, then the people can rejoice in that. And it's not so easy sometimes. I've said for years, you know, I wish there was such a thing as a republicrat. You know, someone who cared about the poor, who loved the poor, loved the immigrant, and made room, like this says, it makes room for those who have been rejected by society and love those outside of our borders enough to embrace and to love them and at the same time can balance their checkbook. If I could find somebody that could do both, you know, then, then it would be good. And so uh, pray about it, read your scriptures, do work on what people uh, believe, what our two candidates believe in our local and statewide candidates believe and vote. Today we are, we're starting a new, a little mini uh, series called Why Worship? Uh, we're going to go back to worship here before we end today. That's why there was only one song. We're reversing the order because we're going to get an opportunity to practice what we learned this morning. And then we're coming back tonight again to uh, do that. So that's why we've changed things around a little bit. I want to share just a bit about you know, my journey when it comes to worship. Uh, some of you who have been coming here for a while know that I about sang my voice out <clears throat> in the first service. That's why it's about gone. But um, uh, I wasn't raised in church. Probably went two or three times to church uh, before I started dating my wife. Uh, and then part of the requirements for dating her was I had to go to church with her. And so uh, when I was 18, 19 years old, I would, she would drag me to church, and, and uh, I would sit there, and, you know, after a while, it sounded like, but the first part of the service when the songs were being, having been a musician since about six years old, seven years old, the music part of the service, though the music was a little bit too... Like there was no groove, you know, no rhythm to it. Uh, the words began to capture my heart as it began to describe this God of creation, this God of, of uh, everything that we see. Uh, but, you know, I just couldn't get, the, I couldn't get into it. It was hard for me to get into it because worship, as we're going to see, is a body thing. It involves your body. It involves using what God has given you to express your love and your appreciation for God. So I was always looking for the beat. And I was looking for words that I could relate to. And uh, when we were first married, I think I was maybe 20 years old then, you know, all you could find around here was, 
where it's Southern gospel. Now, don't get mad at me about Southern gospel. It's, I've learned, I've come to learn to appreciate it, the four-part harmonies and how much talent it takes to sing in a quartet and all of this. But at that time, I wanted something that sounded like Led Zeppelin, something that sounded like Jimi Hendrix. And I was looking for, you know, Christian. I wanted to hear something about Jesus with that kind of groove. And they had this station up in New York, in Freeville, New York. And they had this little radio and at night, we could barely pick it up. And I would take it and walk around the house and try to find that spot where I would hear the Scott Ross show is coming on the radio. And then he would have people on like the All Saved Freak Band. <laughs> and they would play this music and I would go, and that's what I'm talking about. And then Phil Kagey would play and then, you know, rip the guitar to shreds. And I would go, there's Jimi Hendrix, you know, for Jesus. And, uh, but it was nothing down here. And eventually, uh, there, a little bit of that contemporary music filtered down. The more I read the Bible, though, I began to realize that music and worship is a big part of this book. And something that was really fascinating to me was over in the fourth chapter of Genesis, we read the first three professions, I guess, you know, if you want to see a description of, of jobs in the Bible, other than Adam and Eve when they were in the garden, we read about these three guys. One of them was named uh, Jabel, you know, and it says that he raised, this is in Genesis 4:21. he raised livestock and lived in tents. And so you got a guy, the first profession is he loves steaks and he likes to go camping. So I'm already excited. I'm like, okay, and then there was a guy named Tubal Cain, and it says he was the maker of iron and steel. In other words, he made tools, Lowe's. It's getting great for us men. Right off the bat in Genesis 4, and then it describes this guy, and then the guy named Jubal. Remember jubilation, that word? Jubal, and it says he was the creator of all musical instruments. And I went, wow, how good is this? I mean, just be coming a new Christian, I've got, the Bible talks about steak, camping, tools, and music. It's like, this is really awesome to be a Christian, to know that that is involved in this walk with God. And the more I read in the Old Testament, the more I saw that God used music and used worship. When they would go into battle, they would take their worship leaders, and they would put them out in front of the soldiers. Can you imagine these worship leaders? I mean, it's like, oh, you're going first. What? All I've got is a clarinet. I mean, yeah you're, yeah, you're out front. You're out front. You just play the worship songs, and all the big guys with the swords are in the back. And all those wimpy musicians, we're like up in the front, you know. And, and, uh, but what happened is it was the worship of God. It was the calling of God down to bless what was about to happen. And it also inspired the soldiers as they marched into battle and let them know that they were going into battle in the name of the Lord, that they were calling on the name of the Lord. Worship was a huge part of Israel's history all through the Old Testament and right on into the New Testament. Uh, but when you come into church, if you're not used to church, like I wasn't when, when I came to Christ uh, back in, you know, so long ago, and I walked into church, you may be saying the same thing. You may come into church on a Sunday morning and you go, I don't get it. Why do you guys spend 20, 25 minutes on Sunday mornings just simply singing some songs? Why do you do that? I mean, you put them up on the screen, you sing them, there's a band up here playing. I mean, wouldn't we better spend our time maybe out in the lobby having donuts and coffee, getting to know one another? Wouldn't we better spend our time doing something else, maybe in a you know, 
talking, to, finding out more about each other, going out, doing something else, serving the community, introducing ourselves to one another. Couldn't we do something better with our time than that? But you see, that's the point. That is the point. For 20 or 25 minutes, we get to not think about ourselves. It's not about us during those 20 or 25 minutes. During those 20 or 25 minutes, we're seeing and saying the same things about God. How often during the week do you get to do that? How often do you get to sing and say the same words about this great God that we serve? I bet you this is about the only time during the week you get to do it. It's a very special time. And that is the point of worship, is it's not about us. And suddenly there's 20, 25 minutes where we can peel off all of that and we can say, hey, unto you, Lord. And let's just be honest about this. You got a little fill in there in your handout. If you want to track along with me, you should have a pen and, and there's a little blank, like four-part fill in. And this is your first one. Is this why worship? And let's face it, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. We begin to look like what we worship. We be- begin to take on the characteristics. If we worship money, we become greedy. Everywhere we look, we look and we see an opportunity to make money. If we worship sex, everywhere we look, we're going to see an opportunity to be lustful. If we worship God, everywhere we look, we have an opportunity to see His handiwork, to see Him. If we don't worship the living God, we will worship someone or something because we're made to worship. Every one of us are worshipers right now. It's just a matter of what or who we worship. When uh, this thought came to me in the first service, we were, I was sitting over there worshiping and some young fellow surfer friends walked in and sat down and I was reminded of when I first got married that uh, right after we took our vows, I leaned over to my wife and said, don't ever make me choose between you and surfing. I know, I I was awful. I mean, awful. But what did I worship? What did I worship? I mean, because I saw all of life in that. But she still stuck it out with me. See, 41 years later, we're still so. And I'm getting a little better at it, okay? I'm I'm getting a little better at it. We all become what we worship. We see it. Whatever we have our hearts set on, that is what we see wherever we go. That's our lens of life. So today we're starting this uh, new series on why worship. It's my desire that our church here at the Vineyard, that we would grow in our depth of love for God, that we would appreciate the presence of God even more so and to a deeper degree, and that we would see His presence manifested in our church in new ways. And so that's why we're reversing the order of service. We're going to have worship tonight at 630 and we're going to practice what we're going to learn. So let's pray, and we'll jump into this for a few minutes, and then uh, the team will come back up. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the example of the scripture that we have. And thank you for music, Lord, is one of the ways we can worship you. It makes it easier for us to be in unity, to sing, and to say the same things. And Lord, music does something to us physically. It affects us, and I believe that... Uh, You created it that way. It tugs on our heart. It opens up uh, parts of our lives to you that maybe nothing else can. And so when we worship in this way with music, Lord, this morning, and we just ask for you to come and touch our hearts. We give you this time. We ask for you to breathe life 
on your word this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be over in 2 Samuel 6, the Old Testament. David has made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. He has also made Jerusalem the center of worship for the Lord. And there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes. But it was a box. It wasn't like Noah's Ark. It wasn't a boat. Ark of the Covenant was a box about three feet, maybe three quarters inches long, then about two and a quarter inches deep, uh, two feet and a quarter inch deep, and two feet and a quarter inch wide. This box there is a picture of it in uh, what they thought it might look like, overlaid with gold inside and out, and it had a lid on top of it with these two angels, cherubim, the Bible calls them, with their wings almost touching right in the middle. And the angels were looking down upon uh, the ark. And so David has gone to get this Ark of the Covenant. He's going to bring it back to Jerusalem because David's desire is that the worship of God go on in Jerusalem. He wants to see the people worship. The Ark of the Covenant has been kind of a focal point for God's presence. It's not that God lived in the box. God doesn't live in a box. But it was a focal point of God's presence in the Old Testament. And wherever they took that, wherever they took this thing, God could, he would show up. And so David wanted it back. He wanted it back in Jerusalem. And so he has gone to get it. It's been taken and he went to get it. So we're going to join David in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 5. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. Man, what that, that must have looked like. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel was celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals, all these ancient musical instruments. Now, what's the big deal about the ark? Why are they having such a party around this box that's moving down the road. Well, inside of that box were three items. One was the Ten Commandments. The tablets of God were in there, the law of God. Another another item that was in this box was Aaron, the priest of of the Old Testament. Aaron, his rod, his staff, a piece of that staff was in there. Now, what's so special about his staff? Well, when God called Aaron to be the priest, and to lead, to be the leader of the priest, he put that rod down, that dead stick, and God affirmed and confirmed his calling on Aaron as the priest by that dead stick sprouting. All of a sudden, it came to life on the end of it. Leaves came out, and almonds even began to blossom out of the end of it. So this was a reminder of God's faithfulness and, and the, the, of the priesthood. So we have the law. We have the reminder of the priesthood of Aaron, and then there was some bread, the manna. Remember God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness with the bread, miraculously, how he got them through the desert. The quail would come in, the the manna would come, and so there was some bread there in that ark to remind them of the faithfulness of God. And so those were the items, and on top was this, some called it a mercy seat. It's really more like an atonement cover, an atonement where these angels touched, and this is the mercy, a picture of the mercy of God falling down on this box and this lid 
And so God's presence was honored wherever that box went, wherever they took the Ark of the Covenant, many times God's presence would come. So David wants God's presence in Jerusalem. And so they go and get it, and they're bringing it back. And we do become what we worship, and David is wanting Israel to worship God. He is wanting Israel to be more like the God that he loves, and it's his intention to get the presence of God to Jerusalem so all the people could be affected by his presence. you got a second fill in there now. And so when the people saw this coming, when they would see the Ark of the Covenant coming, they knew that God was coming. Because here's your second fill in, worship helps us become aware of the presence of God. Some people say, I don't ever feel God. I don't ever sense God's presence. Do you worship him? Do you, do you worship him? Do you give him praise? Do you verbally say, Jesus, I love you. I want to sense your presence. I want to know you are here. Do you worship him? Because worship helps us become aware of the presence of God. Yes, God is always everywhere. And he's inside you if you're a follower of Christ. But he also comes, as the book of Acts shows us and he falls on us and he shows up in his presence in very special ways and one of the times that he can show up is in our worship of him do we as a church want more of his presence do we want to experience more of the presence of god in our church and in our lives then we need to experience more of worship worshiping him what does the ark have to do with us now let me tell you Everything in that box pointed to Jesus. Everything in there pointed to a day that we're living in right now. Every bit of it. I read years ago that the Old Testament is a book in search of an ending. That when it ends, everything's up in the air. There's no ending in the Old Testament. It's looking to the Messiah. It's looking for some culmination, some finish is that they look for the hope that would come in the Messiah. But think of this. In that box, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. In that box and in our worship at times when we come to worship God, do you realize we have fallen short of the law of God? We don't measure up. That's a part of seeking the presence of the Lord. When I look at the presence of God, when I look at God and I look at this the Ark of the Covenant, and I look at my own life and I realize it doesn't measure up. That law is there to point us toward someone who did measure up. Has anybody ever read the book of Romans? Especially the third chapter. It's all really good. But in the book of Romans, we learn that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He came and answered every little part of it. And as that ark is being carried and been coming along, it's pointing to a day when there would come a Savior, a Messiah, who would fulfill every part of the law. We live in that day. We live in that day. Aaron's rod that budded, what does that have to do with anything, Tim? Well, how about this? A dead stick laid on the ground, dead, buried, gone and it comes back to life it blossoms once again and it bears fruit Jesus the dead branch thrown down on the ground buried three days in the grave sprouts comes back up and then bears fruit his church that ark was pointing to our day the pot of manna 
the bread in there. Does anybody know what John 6, 35 says? I am the what of life? The bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Man, that ark was pointing to the day that we live and the presence of God was around that, around the presence of what? Jesus. And the golden lid, the mercy seat, or the atonement cover. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over what? Judgment. Inside that box is a reminder that we didn't measure up the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And yet over the top of that is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. David was celebrating with all of his might. He didn't know what this box was pointing to. He had no idea, but it was enough for him. It was enough to know that the presence of God was with him right then. How about us? We have that living out among us and in us right now. The ark. When we focus on God in worship, we begin to recognize his presence that the Holy Spirit is here. The Ark of the Covenant, as awesome as it was, is nothing compared to Jesus. And you know what? Who's the Ark now? You are. That's right. The Ark of the Covenant came in this morning through those doors. The Ark of the Covenant is sitting in the seats right now because the law has been written, Ezekiel says, on our hearts. He said a day was coming when the law would be written on our hearts and then God himself would move us to obey. That's the Holy Spirit. We live in that day. You're the Ark of the Covenant. The staff, the priesthood, Aaron, we are all now priests. All of us, priests unto our God. And Jesus is the chief shepherd, head priest. The manna, Jesus feeds us daily as we need it. Man, if the presence of God came when this furniture was brought to Israel, how much more so when you come to Jesus and we all worship together? How much more presence is there for us to experience together? Harps, liars, harps and liars doesn't mean people who complain and tell stories. Harps, liars, that was a Doug Dorman joke, but y'all missed it right there. Harps, liars, tambourines, sistrums, Uh, symbols, basically anything they could get their hands on to make music with, they grabbed it and they went to it. Any instrument that Israel had, they would use it to give praise to God. Sing to the Lord. I'm telling you, this worship service in 2 Samuel 6 would have made a lot of us very uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, even the king, I mean, you would think, we're in the middle of an election right here, about to see a new or the same president, we're about to see uh, an election happen. What if the president of the United States suddenly got up and started dancing and worshiping God and just going to it and trying to lead all of Washington to a worship service? Now, that's what David was doing. I mean, that's what David was doing. And next week, we're going to see that not everybody's happy when that happens. Not everybody is overjoyed when you see the leaders of the church suddenly get excited about Jesus. But David doesn't care. He's got the presence of God back. He wants the presence in Israel. Do you want the presence in your life? Do we want it in our church? Do we want it? Because when we worship, the presence of God will come to a greater degree. I believe that. John R. Stott, one of, one of every preacher's favorite uh, pastors and theologians, and I think just died a couple years ago, 
said this, John Stott, the great faiths of the world, including Buddhism and Islam, do not understand the access to God that we Christians enjoy. The clearest proof of this is the simplest. It lies in the hymns of Christian worship. A Buddhist temple never resounds with the cry of praise. A Muslim, Muslim worshipers never sing for joy in a mosque. Their prayers are at their highest prayers of submission and of request. They seldom reach the joyful note of thanksgiving. They are never jubilant with the sounds of the forgiven. By contrast, whenever Christian people come together, it is almost impossible to stop them singing. The Christian community is a community of celebration. That's who we should be. That's who God has called us to be. And maybe you're thinking, Tim, I've had a terrible week. You don't understand. God has not been that good to me this week. I'm suffering loss. I'm facing some challenges in my life. My heart is broken. It's very challenging. Well, what a great time to draw close to God in worship. I want to just tell you people that come, you people that come to church, everybody in here suffers loss. Every single person you look around this room has a heartache. Every person here goes through struggles and challenges. So when we join in worship, yeah, take a little look around the room and know there are other people who are going through some of the similar things. You're not alone. You're not that unique. Sorry. And there are people around worshiping God anyway. If we ever need the presence of God in our lives, it's when we're suffering loss. It's when we have questions about what's going to happen next. Maybe you have prayed and prayed for your child and prayed, and they are not getting any more closer to God than the... I mean, actually, they've gone the other way. And you're going, what is up, God? Worship God. Praise Him. Maybe you suffered loss recently. Praise Him. Worship Him. When we give God the attention he deserves, then his presence comes. And we need his presence in trying times. That's why, in all honesty, if you go to a church that's poor financially, you will see more worship and praise in it. I mean, it's, it's the higher the level of income in a church, the less worship and praise you see. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. Now, you explain that to me. If we want the presence, let's worship. Let's ask God to come. Let's worship God. They were, you know, when God comes in our worship and when we begin to empty ourselves, there will be crying. It's okay. It's all right to be broken. It's all right to feel the loss. It's all right to pour it out to God. Sometimes we are humbled, which is good. When I told my wife, don't make me choose between surfing and you, I needed to be humbled. I have been. Thank you. Continue to be. There's repentance at times that when we worship, God will suddenly bring to mind something you said, something you did, something you need to say, God, I was wrong. Forgive me. Help me, Lord. That's a beautiful thing. Did you know repentance is your first act of worship? The first time you ever worshiped was the day you said, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. That was your first act of worship. When you said, you're God, I'm not, and I need you. Repentance is always an act of worship. It's saying to God, you're big enough to cover this sin and to forgive me. 
And so in worship, as we draw near to his presence, that repentance comes. Our love deepens for God. It it deepens for one another. You can't be mad at your brother and sister for too long if you worship with them. It's like, praise you, Lord. You know, and then God's presence comes and you feel your heart getting, dude, you need to deal with that. Like, yeah, two chihuahuas in church. Like, God just comes and our love deepens for one another. It deepens for God and our anticipation that God is going to do something, that he is going to move in our midst is elevated as we worship. It's electric. God comes with his presence in worship. Do you want to experience more of his presence? Could you use more of a sense of God with you right now? Do you want that? Do you want that in your life? Well, then let's learn to worship. David and his crew were having a grand old time, man. They were pouring it out. And uh, in the midst of that celebration, though, they may have forgotten something. This is your number three fill-in, and that is this, that worship also creates reverence. Worship creates reverence. Look at 2 Samuel 6, 6 through 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, that's harsh. I don't care what you say. That's, I mean, I read that and I go, wow. Man, it was just a wonderful charismatic service and one guy just went over to steady the Ark of the Covenant. It was about to fall off the cart. All he did was what any of us would have done. Like, oh, let's don't let the Ark fall on the ground. Grab it, steady it, bam, God kills him. Now, what would you do? Sometimes we forget the greatness of God in the midst of our excitement. We forget that he is the Lord God Almighty. You know, Israel had been told how to carry this ark. Tracy, can you put that picture back up of the ark of the covenant? See those, see those poles? Those poles were on there for a reason because Israel had been told that the priests were to carry the ark of the covenant. Where did the cart come from? Now, it was a new cart, and if you're going to let God, if you're going to give God a ride, go get a new car. I mean, so they built a new cart. I mean, it was new, brand new. Put, put God on the cart, you know, but it wasn't what God said to do. It wasn't how he said he wanted to be worshipped, how he was supposed to handle this thing. Excitement is no substitute for obedience. Even our obedience is an act of worship to God. When we do things the way God has called us to live life and to do, that is an act of worship to God. It brings God's presence in a greater degree. And let's be practical here. We get lazy in our worship, don't we? And we want someone else to carry it for us. We let the band carry it. Here's our ox cart for the presence of God. Instead of me putting my shoulder up under it as a priest unto my God and carrying that, I'll let the band carry it. Let the band carry the ark. Let me lean here a little while and let them carry it. I mean, they sing better than I do after all. So let them play and let them sing. We get sloppy. We get lazy. And I got it. Jesus, yes, Jesus is your best friend. He is a friend, I believe, that sticks closer than a brother. But can I tell you something? He's not your boyfriend. He's not your boyfriend. He's not your buddy. He is Jesus Christ, Lord of all. 
100% God, the only one and only Savior, worthy of all worship, adoration, and reverence. Yes, we can have him as a friend, but let us never, ever forget who he is, the one and only Son of God. The ancients would build these great cathedrals um, many, many years ago when I was young. I toured in this orchestra over in Europe, and we would go into these old cathedrals. And it was, they were beautiful. They were abandoned. You know, like 10 people in there on Sundays. But this is one in Scotland. And uh, you see how in the center of the worship, they would go up to a point like this. See all these points? You know, that was done on purpose. Because when you walked in a cathedral, what you, they wanted you to realize, and some of these places took over 100 years or more to build. It was an act of worship to God. That was pointing to the holy otherness of God. So when you walked in, immediately you would be captured, this reverent feeling that God was wholly other. He is high and lifted up. And it was meant to grab your heart, to humble you before God, to realize you were in the presence of your creator. Holy other. Well, we know in Jesus, he's Emmanuel as well, right? He's God with us. That's why we have a low ceiling. God with us. We actually have a low ceiling because we can't afford a high one. There it is. <laughs> but the ancients understood this very well. And there are other segments of, of Christianity that understand the holy otherness of God. In our exuberance, in our celebration, in our worship, let us not forget that God is the one and only God. And let us worship Him with reverence, with humility, respect, honor. In the book of Revelation, there's these guys, and I'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. They're like my heroes, but they can't, I don't know if they have a problem, but they can't seem to stay on their feet. Like for four chapters, these guys called the elders, every time God shows up, they fall down. I mean, every time, every time heaven says anything wonderful about God, the angels sing, they go, "Mm," they fall. And it's they're bowing before God. They've been given crowns. And what do they do? They take their crowns. They won't wear them. They throw them at Jesus' feet. If there's any reason for any of us to ever have a crown, it's for one reason, so we can lay it at his feet one day. That's the only reason we should ever want a crown, so I can have something to give to God when I finally stand before him. These guys in the book of Revelation, they recognize the awesomeness of God And so they could not stay on their feet for too long whenever he came. So we become what we worship. What are you becoming? We become aware of of the presence of God as we worship, and worship creates reverence. We become awed at the greatness of God. And your last one there is simply this. Worship helps us embrace the mystery, the mystery that is God. I mentioned earlier that we all go through loss and pain and we struggle at times. And it is so true and it's at those times that God, the mystery of God becomes acutely obvious. Like when you've prayed for your children before they were ever born and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you continue to pray but one of them strays off and they're not coming back, it looks like. There's a mystery in that. Why, God? What is that about? There's someone who has been faithful to God all their life and suddenly they get some horrible disease and they're going through suffering and you go, what is that? There is a, 
there is a mystery in all of that. And then there's just God. I mean, there's questions we have. What's the first question your children ever ask you about God? Where did God come from? Who created God? That's a mystery. He always has been, it says. He's always existed, always. Brennan Manning, uh, the author of a wonderful book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. If you haven't read it, it's worth picking up. Uh, The guy's name is Brennan Manning, The Ragamuffin Gospel, because we're all ragamuffins here. He says this, God is not a kindly uncle. He is an earthquake. And who understands the earthquake? We revel and worship at times we can embrace the mystery. We can appreciate the mystery that is God. We hold on to it because if we understood it all, it wouldn't be. He wouldn't be God, would he? So we embrace the mystery. John Stott again, John R. Stott. This is a quote from one of his books. Awesome book on the cross. Everybody should own it. But that, This quest for transcendence is a challenge to us and to the quality of our public worship. Does it offer what people are craving, the element of mystery, the sense of the numinous? In biblical language, the fear of God. In modern language, transcendence. My answer to my own question is not often. The church is not always conspicuous for the profound reality of its worship. In particular, we who call ourselves evangelical do not know much how to worship. We seem to have little sense of the greatness and glory of Almighty God. We do not bow down before Him in awe and wonder. Our tendency is to be cocky and flippant and proud. We take little trouble to prepare our worship services. In consequence, they are sometimes slovenly, mechanical, perfunctory, and dull. At other times, they are frivolous to the point of irreverence. No wonder those seeking reality often pass us by. God help us. David had a bucket of reality thrown on his face when Uzzah was suddenly dropped dead. In 2 Samuel 6, 6, when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. What a mystery. The mystery of God's anger. God is not a kindly uncle. He is an earthquake. We can't get too familiar with God and that mystery of Him coming to us and being the best thing that ever happened to us, but at the same time recognizing that He is holy other is important in our worship. And we become to realize that to greater depths when we do worship. God can never be tamed. Never. Never tamed. And David reacted emotionally to the mystery. He became angry with God. We do the same, don't we? God does something we don't understand. We get mad. And then he became afraid in verse 9. Then we say, gosh, what's God going to take from me next? What's he going to touch? What, 
God, what are you going to do? What, what, I don't want to suffer any more loss. What are you going to take from me? And then in verse 10, verses 10 through 11, he withdraws. And that's what we do. We get mad, angry, afraid, and then we pull away from God. Maybe you're here today and you've pulled away. You've stepped back from God because of some of these things in your life. I want you to know this, though. We can respond like David, but David didn't always stay like that. He got angry. He got afraid. He withdrew, but in 2 Samuel 6, 12, we read, Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God, because of the presence of God. So David went down and brought up the ark. I want that. I want that. I don't completely understand why you struck Uzzah down, but I want your presence, Lord. I want it. From the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David to Jerusalem with rejoicing. Yes, there is a mystery there. We cannot understand all that has gone on in our lives. But I want you to know that if you truly know God, you're like David. You will not stay away from him forever. You will have to get back to his presence. That is what worship is about, is about experiencing his presence. And my prayer for us over the next few weeks is that we as a church would come to experience him to a greater degree in our worship. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and were perhaps even challenged in some way to continue pursuing a closer relationship with God through Jesus. Here at Seacoast Vineyard Church, our vision is to worship God with passion, to reach out in Jesus' name with compassion, and to mature as a people of power and purpose. For more information, including our location and gathering times, visit www.seacoastvineyard.com.